Poor Peter. He's, he's given everything to follow Jesus. He loves Jesus. He wants Jesus' mission to be successful. He wants others to learn about Jesus and to follow him and to do the, make the decision that, that Peter himself has made because he sees, he understands, even if not fully, who Jesus is. He understands that Jesus is the pathway to something better. And here's Jesus telling Peter that they're on their way to Jerusalem where he is going to antagonize the authorities and get killed. And of course Peter is upset. Of course he is. He, he says, Jesus, how can, you, how can you do this? How can you possibly throw all this away that we have been working for? And Jesus, of course, as we hear from the story, he says, you, you're thinking of the wrong things here, Peter. You're not, you're not thinking of where it is that God is leading us and inviting us and why we need to do this. And I think it's fairly natural because if we think about the people that we love, that the people we have committed ourselves to, our spouses, our families, our children, our, our maybe our brothers and sisters, you know, not my family, but maybe yours. <laughs> but the people that we, we choose to love and commit to, we, we want them to have the very best. We want them to thrive and be successful. I mean, it, that's, just, that's just kind of how love works, Right? That when we, we, especially like for parents, you know, when you look at your children, you want them to be everything they could possibly be. You want them to succeed in ways that you couldn't possibly succeed. You want them to be happy. You want them to never know heartbreak or hurt, pain, suffering. Nobody wants that for their children. Nobody wants that for their spouse. And yet the reality is that if, if as parents or as spouses or as loving partners of somebody, if, if we seek only for them to never know a life without difficulty, they're going to be missing out on some really important things. They're going to not learn some things that they desperately need to learn. They're going to have a false idea of who they are and their place in the world. Right. We see this culturally in lots of different ways. We see it working out in what we call helicopter parents, right? If any of you work at the university or, or at, you know, associated with the university anyway, you know about these, these kids who, who come to college and their parents have always done for them and they're at the point where they're almost incapable of taking care of anything for themselves and when they meet the first sort of obstacle to their glorious ascent into the world, they don't really know how to cope and their parents have to hover in like helicopters and and see them, right? We, we all see that. We see it, but it's not just, you know, grown-up kids. We see it, if you've ever been to a youth sports event, <laughs> you will see this, right? How many parents are sort of living vicariously through their children, right? My daughter, she used to play soccer, and where we lived in West Virginia, there was a, a big youth soccer program run by the YMCA, and I swear every child under the age of 10 was in YMCA soccer, and you'd go out to the soccer, and they had a beautiful soccer complex. We'd go out there, and like, you know, you see all these people, and they're like four years old, 
four. And I don't know if you ever watch, I don't know if you know like real soccer, if you've seen it at the high school or the college or on Saturday morning on TV in England or whatever, but you know, soccer is a beautiful, fluid game. But that's not how four-year-olds play soccer. There's like 10 kids in like a scrum moving with a ball around the field. They don't even have goalies yet in this league. And they still can't score because they're just, they kick each other and they take the ball from their own teammates half the time. I mean, it's, they're not playing soccer. They're, they got like soccer uniforms, they got the soccer cleats, and they got a soccer ball. But that's really about as far as it goes. Right? They're not, they're not really into the game. And yet, because they're four. And yet, you see these parents running up and down the sideline, right? Like, this is the World Cup. Like, what happens in this four-year-old Saturday morning soccer game is so terribly important. Because the truth is that sometimes, and I think Peter is showing this, when we, when we love someone, there's, there's the, always the possibility that it's not just about our selfless giving and desire for them, but about kind of what we're getting out of it, right? As, as parents, we, we do have a tendency to, to see the success of our children as sort of reflecting on us, right? It used to be, I don't know you don't see it so much anymore, but there's lots of bumper stickers that say, you know, my child is honor student at Woodrow Wilson School. Nobody has a bumper sticker that says, my child set the record for detention. <laughs> right, so we... We can't help, and I, and I see this in married couples as well, and, and, and unmarried couples, but people who are together who, who sort of bask in the glory of the other half, right? That, um, that the success of one partner, the others kind of get to uh, be successful as well. I think, you know, the, it's one of the weird, like the, the president, and I don't mean this particular president, I mean like all the presidents, right? We have, there's the president, and then the first lady. Well, all she did was, or he, I guess, and when we get to that point, all they did was marry the guy who became president. They didn't necessarily achieve anything. They may be wonderful and great people. They may be greatly accomplished. But the role that they hold is not because of their own merit, but it's the reflected glory of someone else. So we see this in our culture all the time. It's one of the ways that humans work, that we, we, we seek our own success and the success of those that we commit ourselves to. And this is where, where Peter is at. That Peter has given his everything to Jesus. He's given up his job. His, his wife, because he's married. Remember, we, we healed his mother-in-law earlier, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he's married. Maybe he has kids and they're going like, Peter, what are you doing following around this guy? You've got to get back to work. But Peter is committed 100% and Jesus' success in some way is Peter's success because he, he feels as that he's picked the winner and the winner's glory is going to come on to him. And so sometimes our love for others, sometimes our desire for their best isn't always selfless but it, it has a little taint of our own success. And when, and when they make choices that we feel aren't the best choices. They're not always because we think it's going to be bad for them, but we have maybe just a teeny little bit of a sense of fear or shame for how it will reflect on us. That we, we wish them to not make those choices because of its impact on us, not the impact on them. 
not whether it's the best thing for them to do or not, but because maybe our friends won't think we look very good if our children do these things or if our spouse does these things. If your husband is a successful engineer at a high-tech company and he quits to go to seminary and become a priest in West Virginia, <laughs> you may think he's lost his head. I can assure you my wife did. But at the same time, Jesus is right to remind us that sometimes our love for another causes us to be their tempter. And we're talking about positive things, but this works in negative ways as well. I mean, many of us in our, our family situations have had a family member who's, who's been an addict, an alcoholic, a drug addict, some kind of problem that they've, they've struggled with. And it's really hard. It's really hard to know how to love selflessly in a situation like that. This has been a struggle in my own family. I have a sister who struggled with, with addiction her whole life. She's 62 years old, and I think she's probably in a good place right now. But it's been a hard road to walk. And it's been hard for us as a family to, to know how to love her in a way that, that she can seek her own best self and to understand that, that she has our support without enabling that addiction. And I don't know that there's, a, there's an answer, right? I can't tell you that if you just accept Jesus in your heart, it's all going to be good because it doesn't really work that way. We are sort of mired in a broken world, and so our brokenness is never fully transcended. But Jesus here tells us in this story that after, after he rebukes Peter and tells him that he has his mind set on the wrong things, that he's too, still too focused on the impact of Jesus's calling on him and not on Jesus. That he tells all the disciples and the crowd that he says, gather around, I need something I have to tell you here. If you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. You have to take your cross to your own crucifixion. You have to give up that sense of your worry about you and what other people think about you and about the ways that following God might be difficult or embarrassing. That if you really have your eye on the greater good, if you really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if you really hold that if we could just follow the things that Jesus invites us to, that we would live in a much better world, then you need to let go of some of those fears, some of that sense of, of shame and Holy, give yourself, your whole self, to God. And that's really hard. I know it's really hard because I, I struggle with it. I'm sure all of you struggle with it as well. That it is almost impossible for us to wholly give ourselves completely to God. And yet that's the invitation that Jesus offers up to us. And that I think that if we are people of faith, and not just in terms of we believe in Jesus, but people who hold on to the promises that God has given us like Abraham did, even when the evidence all around us tells us that you are crazy to hold on to it. Hundred-year-old people don't have children. And yet God's promises come to fruition. 
And in the resurrection of Jesus, God's ultimate promise to us that, that there is nothing in this world, nothing in this world that can stand between us and God's loving promise to be with us through the difficult, most difficult and troubling of times can ever be broken. That there is nothing we can do that puts us beyond the pale. That there is no line across which we go and God's love does not follow. That our lives, no matter how far we might sink, are always redeemable. That God's promise to be with us never goes away. That God will give us the strength. God will give us the courage to march through the evil that we are ensnared in in this life and as we try to hold true and to see that one relationship at a time, one opportunity at a time, one day and step at a time, we can continue to work to build the kingdom of God and create the world that Jesus offers to us. The world that shows us that we can live a life without fear, without shame, without undue suffering and pain. And that nothing in this world can take that away from us through faith. Amen.